Good morning, Three Rivers Church. We are glad that you are here, and those of you who are watching at home or live streaming. Uh, today, we're continuing our study on the church, and we're going to look at um, starting today in this series on the church. We're going to look at the first of nine marks, nine indicators of a New Testament church. And let me speak very quickly to the method I'm going to use this morning in doing that. The first part of the method is we're going to, we're going to give you this morning our reason for how we're going to study through this portion of this series on the church. Secondly, in our method, we're going to be moving very fast through the scriptures, starting in Genesis chapter 1. So go ahead and get your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to commend to you digitally the notes. They're going to be very important for you this morning. Maybe you're going to use them this morning, but you're going to have to use them in your small group later. So we're going to be moving very quickly through the scriptures, starting in Genesis 1. And we're going to move our way... To a single big idea at the end of that journey by doing a biblical theology of preaching. That's our topic. The first of nine marks of a New Testament church is the mark of preaching. And then after we come down to that one big idea this morning, we're going to make some points of application. I want to refer you to a couple of really good books that are going to be helpful for you if you want to go study and dig a little more. The first would be Nine Marks uh, by Mark Dever, who I had the privilege of having for church history, a church history on the Reformation. Uh, and he is awesome. He actually will give you a call back. I had a question and he called me. Uh, and that's pretty cool. He's awesome. I love Dr. Dever. And this guy I've never had the privilege of meeting, but I love him. Graham Goldsworthy, he's an Anglican, so don't let that turn you off. But the title of the book is Preaching the Whole Bible is Christian Scripture by Graham Goldsworthy. I want to commend these two books to you if you want to dive deeper into Scripture and all of Scripture being Christian Scripture and how you study through it and how you teach it. Those two resources will be very helpful for you. So this morning, we're going to move quickly. We're going to have to go like Jehu through the house of Ahab. And if you don't know about Jehu and the house of Ahab, go read your Old Testament. And basically, it's going to stick and move. We're going to go fast, okay? We're going to hit the passage and move on. So I need you to hang on tight, okay? Buckle your uh, metaphorical seatbelt and hang on. Mark number one, preaching. Now, I told you in our method, we're going to give you the reason why we're going to teach like this through this part of the series. This portion, when we cover these marks of a New Testament church, we're going to be doing a biblical theology practiced as preaching. In fact, next week is going to be on biblical theology, but we're going to be doing a biblical theology as the preaching in this part of the series. We're not going to proof text because that's not how you study your Bible. In other words, we're not going to take a single verse, pull it up out of its context, and use it as our justification. We are going to use the whole Bible, that's biblical theology, using the whole Bible to see how the whole Bible teaches these points. We want you, therefore, to develop the discipline of deriving your theological conviction from the whole Bible, not Simple verses alone. The second reason we're doing this is we want to model for you in our preaching how to do biblical theology so that you can go and imitate it. We want to equip you and equip you well so that you can go and do what we have done for you. 
The third reason we want to do it like this through this part of this series on the church is we want you to pound this out in covenant fellowship. Meaning there is no way this morning you're going to be able to get all of the stuff we're going to hand you sitting here this morning and at home in your small groups on live stream. You're going to have to work this through and it's going to take some time because I am going to give you a lot of information. And and part of the intent is to drive you into covenant fellowship to unpack God's word because that's where it needs to be happening, where the rubber meets the road. And then finally, we want to ruin you for the ordinary. We want to absolutely ruin you for the ordinary so that you can see glorious things and never be able to unsee them. Because once you see, you can never, ever go back. And that's a good thing. So here's the initial question that's going to lead us through this, moving quickly through the text of Scripture. And by the way, we're only scratching the surface. We don't have time to do Genesis all the way to Revelation and pull passages out of it. We're just going to hit and move some key passages. Have you ever asked this question? Why are church worship services constructed around preaching? You ever ask yourself that question? Why do we do that? Why don't we just sing songs? If we're supposed to worship the Lord, why don't we just sing songs, man? Right? And some people, some traditions have jettisoned preaching or minimized it in place of or in favor of other things. But why is it throughout its history, preaching from the Bible has been the centerpiece of Christian worship services? Well, let's answer that question. Here we go. What is this basis for preaching in a Christian worship service? Well, number one, Genesis chapters one through three, we learn something about the nature and character of God. God speaks. He's a communicator. He uses words and he uses words effectively. So Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So we see already this Trinitarian nature of God. He is created and they're formless and void. And verse 3 introduces God's first sermon. Look at what happens. And God said, let there be light. How did God create light? He spoke. He said something. And I want you to notice what happens next. We see here in verse 4, God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. Verse 5, God called, He named, He spoke, and in His speaking, He distinguished between light and darkness. Verse 6, God what? Said, let there be an expanse. God spoke, verse 8, then God named what He spoke into existence. God called the expanse. So God said and God called. Verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 10, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together seas. Verse 11, God said. Verse 14, God said. Verse 20, God said. Verse 22, and God blessed them saying. How did God bless them? He spoke a word. He spoke language. And in speaking language, he blessed these creatures... That fill the waters. Verse 24. God said. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. So God spoke. It obeyed. He used words. He used language. He's speaking. He's proclaiming a word. Created order is forming underneath his powerful word. 
Verse 26, the apex of God's creative genius. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So what happens? God in his Trinitarian nature creates Adam and Eve in his image. In verse 24, God blessed them. How did God bless them? God said to them, and he gave them a word, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So how did God create? He spoke a word. He spoke language. And in that language, there is power and there is effect. And then he names by speaking again. So we see God speaks effectively. Chapter 2 is a repeating of the same thing. God blessed the day. He called the seventh day the Sabbath, right? Then God speaks a word of moral instruction in chapter 2 particularly beginning in verse 4, going through verse 9. He speaks and he teaches us here that there is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15 and 16. And the Lord God commanded the man. So, so God uses a word and he speaks a command. He uses his words to give an imperative. What did he command? He commanded saying. So how did God command? Did he command by giving an eye look? Did he command with a furrowed brow? Did he command with a facial expression? No. God commanded, saying, God spoke, You shall surely eat of the tree of the garden. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Verse 18. Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that man should be alone. So God now gives two moral imperatives. He speaks. Don't eat from this tree. You can eat from these trees. This is not good that you are alone. So God speaks. He creates in his speaking and he creates moral absolutes in his speaking. We could go on and on and on and on and on. But for example, the first two chapters of Genesis present us with the nature and character of God as a speaking God who creates in his speaking, who's effective in his speaking, and he gives moral imperative in his speaking. Ethical imperative is even a better way to say that. Well, we learn also that man created his image and the serpent, which later we're going to discover is Satan, are the only two creatures who have this same capacity that God has to speak. We learn in Genesis 2, 23, after God brought Eve to Adam, man speaks. Verse 22, then the man said. So man is exercising his image-bearing capacity to speak like God speaks. And he speaks this beautiful song over Eve. This is at least now, or this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then we see in chapter 3. We learn that the serpent, who later we're going to discover is Satan, he speaks too, but he speaks something different. We learn here that God creates, God speaks, he speaks effectively, he speaks ethically. We see here that man can honor God with his words, but we also see that Satan can challenge the ethical imperative of God with his words. In speaking God's word, we see there's truth. Adam spoke this praise over his wife, and it is true. We see that the serpent speaks a word, but it's a counter word. It's a different word. He's using words like God uses words, but his words are counter to the words that God has spoken. In fact, we read in chapter 3, verse 1, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, 
So his first words are to question the ethical imperative of God. And then he uses words to distort God's words. And already in Genesis chapter 3, we see there's a battle shaping up over words and what is true and what is not true. Next, we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, verse 13, verse 14, verse 16, and verse 17, that God calls, He speaks, in order to bring confession and repentance and sentence of sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. There has been now the counter-narrative, the dark counter-kingdom that has been spoken. Mankind has believed it and gone with that against God's true words. And there has been a destruction that has taken place. We call it the fall. Sin has entered created order. And God speaks now. God just doesn't leave. He doesn't go all passive-aggressive. He doesn't go off-speaking. God speaks in order to bring about confession and repentance and sentence of sin. Verse 9, Then Yahweh God called to the man. He called to him. He proclaimed to him and said to him, Where are you? So God doesn't stop speaking. He now speaks for correction, confession, and repentance. Verse 13, Yahweh God said to the woman. So he called to Adam. He calls to Eve. We see also here in verse 14 that the Lord also calls to the serpent. Verse 16, God then speaks to the woman. Verse 17, he again speaks to Adam. Then God has this inner Trinitarian conference with himself in which they discuss the sentence for rebellion, verse 22 to 24. So God is still speaking. Are you getting the gist here? God is a communicating God who speaks a word of truth. And then the Lord God said, Yahweh God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So God uses words to pass sentence. Skip over to Genesis chapter 6 verse 13 and all the verses following we see that God speaks to Noah for his saving. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, God spoke. God didn't send a sign in the heavens. God didn't send a special emotional feeling where Noah got goosebumps and the hair stood up on his arms and he had this great idea of a boat. Didn't happen. God spoke to Noah. He said to him, he used words. I have determined to make an end of all flesh. And he tells him what he's going to do and tells him how he, Noah, is supposed to respond. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. God preserves Noah, which is one of the most beautiful gospel pictures in the whole Old Testament that Peter's going to pick up on later at the end of your New Testament where he talks about this ark being a picture of us, of Jesus Christ, and us hiding in Christ, and the judgment of God coming down on the ark, but Noah being saved inside so that when we are in Christ through repentance and faith, God, we are preserved from God's righteous wrath against sin because Jesus took it for us. How awesome is that? So in Genesis 9-1, we see that God speaks again. Genesis 9-1, and God blessed Noah and his sons. And how did he bless them? Look down at the text. Verse 1, he said to them. God spoke. What did he speak to them? He spoke the same word to them that he spoke to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God blesses them by speaking a powerful, effective word to people. You see the picture? Who's the first preacher? God's the first preacher. Number eight. We see in Genesis 11, 
verse 3, at the Tower of Babel, that man speaks in rebellion against the blessing of mission to fill the earth. God has told them, he told Adam and Eve, told Noah, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What do they do in Genesis eleven three? They said to one another, speaking. Now, I want you to notice, you stop right here for a second. I'm going to do my, I'm, I've, I've actually gone through these notes at my desk five times. It's been 29 minutes and 31 minutes with no chasing of squirrels. I just chased a 10 second squirrel. So if you'll allow me 30 seconds, just 30 seconds. Notice what is happening here. It's an echo of the counter narrative. Remember, God speaks, God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. Man worships, he speaks like God. Then the enemy comes in and says, did God say? And he introduces a counter thought. And so there's a war over words and their meaning shaping up. God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, Eden, home base, go. Noah, saved, ark, home base, fill the earth, go. Now they gather, not they, but descendants later on down the line. They've forgotten the Lord. They gather and they made brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top way up in the sky. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see the counter narrative? God said, go, let's stay right here. So you see already now that there is this counter narrative working against God's word. God speaks, it's true. There's a counter narrative that's fueled by the enemy and it comes against God's word so that these ideas begin to clash in our minds. Who do we obey? What do we do? God said this, he said this. Well, this sounds like a little bit like that, but that's not exactly like that. So which one do we do? And so now they're confused and the confusion leads to rebellion against God. As a result of the rebellion, Genesis eleven six. God speaks judgment for refusing the mission to fill the earth. Genesis eleven six. Then the Lord said, Behold, they're one people, one language. This is only the beginning of what they'll do. And so God scatters them over the face of the earth to force them to obey his command to fill the earth. But God doesn't leave it there in judgment. We get Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God speaks and he calls Abraham to go on his mission as his ambassador to the nations, he just scattered for their blessing in knowing the Lord. This is 12, 1 to 3. And the, and the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So as Christian scripture, we see already here that God's intent from the beginning was that people should fill the earth and subdue it, carry the knowledge of God as his ambassadors and co-regents over the face of the earth. Satan has introduced a counter-narrative using words, and God is constantly speaking his truth into that counter-narrative to correct man, bring him to confession repentance, and send him on mission. So he scattered them, and he uses his words now to call Abraham to the mission to bless the nations with the word of who God is. So God speaks, God calls people to speak his word word that is true against the counter narrative that is untrue then we're going to move out of the book of genesis exodus thirty-one eighteen. we just finished studying through the book of genesis and so i'm not going to go recoup all that you can go listen to all that it took us 37 years to preach through the book of genesis so we're going to recover all that for you now you can go listen and look at the notes But God has been gracious to rescue his people from the bondage of Egypt. He's led them out. He's preparing them to be a people that's on the Abrahamic mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and make all these nations know who he is. In Exodus 31, 18, 
He calls Moses up to the mountain and he gives him his word. In Exodus 31, 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him. This always makes me emotional. I can't get over the fact that God would call someone into a relationship and speak to them. Called Moses from the time he was a baby, rescued him, providentially put him in Pharaoh's house to prepare him and equip him. Sends him to lead his people, and then he calls him up on a mountain face to face. Called Moses his friend. And by the way, in Christ, we are friends of God. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? He spoke to him. But after he spoke to him, he did something even special as well. As though speaking face to face were not enough, the Lord gave him two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. God spoke to him, and just so we couldn't miss it, God took his own finger and wrote the words down for him. It's beautiful. Next we see God as a proclaimer in Exodus 34, verse 6. You can just flip over a couple pages, Exodus 34, 6. God preaches a message to Moses. In fact, it, it even says to us here that the Lord proclaimed God speaking. He's, he's not just saying words, he's proclaiming. This Hebrew word proclaim means to cry out loudly. So God's shouting in love at him. Not mad at him, but he wants to make sure he hears. There's passion and fire behind the Lord's words. Right? There's a reason people who preach God's word do it with passion. People who don't do it with passion aren't doing it like God. This is why the, the discipline of preaching should be passionate. And I think you've seen me for 17 years. You know it, it fuels me greatly. And so, and why? Because God is passionate. He yells at Moses, not in getting on to him, but because he wants to make sure, Moses, you, the most important thing for you right now is you need to know who I am. And listen to what God says. Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed before him. Man, would that be cool to be there. And he proclaimed, he shouted, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Can you imagine hearing the voice of God shout that at you? And what does he choose to tell Moses? I am full of love, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Moses, this is who I am. I'm patient and kind and good, Moses. And that's awesome. So God's preaching this word. And the counter narrative is God doesn't love you, doesn't care about you. If he did, why did he let that happen? Right? Counter narrative, man. Words. This is why words matter. It's why definitions to words matter. It's why grammar matters. Right? It's why literature matters. Right? Very important. And then we learn, we get to the prophets of the Old Testament. I'm lumping a lot under this one point. We get to the prophets. You find that they write or they preach, or in Jeremiah's case, they have their helper write it down as they speak it. They preach from the law of God, the word of God, and they preach primarily to that word's application in their time and day. You got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the 12 minor prophets. And the prophets fulfilled this role of speaking the word of God and reminding God's people of his word and its application to their time. You want a good study right now? Go study the book of Amos. You want to know what God says to our day and time? Go read Amos. If you hadn't read Amos, you need to go read Amos. 
And not just a chapter at a time and sitting there, mm, just meditating. No, read all of it. It's a letter. You, it's like a, a thing written. It's like one thing. You need to read all of Amos in one sitting and hear God's word to his people being applied to their day and time. I promise you, you will walk out with more than you can do. The application is thick. So I asked this question. We just went over a lot of stuff. What truths about God and His work in the world emerge from Genesis 1 to 12, from Exodus and from the prophets? Well, we learned that God speaks. As we've said already, God communicates. And God's communication is effective. We learned that God's Word is the very basis of what is true and defines what is false. We learn that God speaks to man and commands creation to obey. His word is powerful, not just to people, but to all of created order. We learn that mankind, as image bearers, communicates with effect. This is what it means partially, just only partially, to be created in the image of God. You have the capacity to use words and use them with effect, which is why the Proverbs say life and death are in your tongue. Not because you're powerful, but because the image of God in us is powerful. And therefore, our words have meaning and power and effect. And how we use them in either proclaiming what is true or false matters. Which is why you hear me exhort you all the time, be careful what you say and post on social media. Your words have power and effect. Stay in the main thing and make the main thing the main thing. And don't be a preacher of something that may turn out to be false in 15 years. Words are powerful. As God's co-regents, we have the ability to speak His Word, and that carries effect. We learn that Satan, an intelligent creature, communicates with evil intent and evil effect as well. He does not have the effect God has because He's not God. He's a creature, but He speaks a counter-narrative, and He does so with effect to the point that He can deceive us. In fact, you will learn in the New Testament that False prophets are fueled by this dark narrative from the dark agent himself. But they come disguised as angels of light, carriers of light, which is why we must be discerning. And what must fuel us is what God has said so that we can discern what is true from what is not true. We learn that we're susceptible to this deceptive and dark counter-narrative. Man becomes ensnared in this counter-narrative and deceived by it. We find that God corrects this counter-narrative with his word to uncover to convict and correct for our good, and He will save by His Word. We learn that speaking words, proclaiming a message that is composed of God's words is powerful, and it becomes a battleground of ideas for either good or evil. What is happening right now is a battleground for good and evil. Let's not overlook it. As I said already, this is why words and grammar and definitions matter. This is why two people, two Christians, can have a conversation and miss one another because they define words differently. When you have a conversation with somebody, ask some critical questions. When you said that word, how do you define that word? What do you mean by that word? Please define that sentence for me. Don't assume because definitions, grammar, matter. They matter, they matter, they matter. Satan's slight misstatement of God's truth brought ruin and destruction. We learn that God pursues man in his state of being ensnared by this counter-narrative by speaking to him and calling him to repentance and mission to carry his word to the world. He gave Abraham a mission, gave 
Noah a mission. And that mission was to carry the knowledge of who God is to the world. So he speaks, and in speaking, he carries a missional intent. If you've been around us long enough, you can start to see why we are who we are and how it fuels who we are. We learn that God pursues man with his word. We learn that God proclaims himself. So when God speaks, God isn't just speaking about general things. He's defining right from wrong by proclaiming who he is. It is intensely theological. The Lord, the Lord. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and full of faithfulness. He reveals himself, his nature, his character to his servants, who he then calls to proclaim and preach about what he just gave them and the word he gave to them about himself. So that the preacher's message, the proclaimer's message isn't different, it's God's message. So we don't go off message, we stay on message. We learn that God's vehicle for speaking to his people is a prophet or a preacher. When we get later in the Old Testament, we see that God calls men and women to open their mouths and speak from his word to remind his people of who he is and what he has said and the mission he's given them and how they apply in their world. And those people model their labor after God himself. This is why, this is why sometimes when you read the prophets... And you're so shocked at some of the things Ezekiel said. And you should be shocked by some of the things Ezekiel says. If you haven't read Ezekiel chapter 16, be prepared. It's rough. And it's not good for little eyes, parents. So watch them as they're reading through the Old Testament. There are things you're going to have to unpack with them. Because you're like, oh, ooh. God, God said that. Which is why sometimes we're surprised when we come to Jesus. And we're so shocked to find the things in the mouth of Jesus that Jesus said. This is Jesus preaching the word he already gave through the prophets. And as shocking as it was to them, it is to those ears in the New Testament because the God who gave it and spoke it originally is the God who's in flesh now speaking it, saying it now. And the response to the prophets then is their response to Jesus then. Same, same. And it's the dark kingdom's response to us now. Finally, God is urgent in his preaching of his message. God's urgent. In fact, we learn that he proclaims. We've already said he proclaims loudly. But did you know that God spoke, God said, that phrase occurs 50 times in the Old Testament. And we're just ratcheting it up. Here we go. The phrase, the Lord spoke or the Lord said, occurs some 250 times. And the phrase, thus says the Lord, occurs over 400 times. So you do the math there. 4 plus 250, that's 650 plus 50. That's 700 times. So some little over 700 times, God says comes out of God's mouth or God's prophet's mouths. We see that God is urgent to make sure the message is heard. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. We're moving. I promise we're moving. What about Jesus in the New Testament? The context of the New Testament is the church. And the the footnote doesn't come across on the blog, and I'm sorry about that. If you want to see the footnote, email me. I'll copy and paste it to you. The context of the New Testament is the church preaching the message of Jesus as the Messiah the faithful and obedient Israel who fulfills the word of God. 1 Corinthians 1, to 24, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we what? Preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what's the message of the church? They're preaching. The, the method is preaching. What are they preaching? Jesus. And what do we see that message do, does? Verse 24, it calls people. Right, So we see the context of the entire New Testament is the church preaching the message of Jesus, who is the faithful and obedient Israel who fulfill 
fulfills all of God's words. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So what was Paul proclaiming? Jesus, His person, and His works. But what we find is the apostles modeled what Jesus Himself did and sent them to do. It's not like the apostles are just making stuff up. They are modeling in their practice what Jesus modeled for them. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus preached God's word. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. So Jesus preached. Saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' first message is a message of repentance. Matthew 11, 1. When Jesus had finished instructing the twelve disciples, so he's teaching them. He went on from there to teach and to preach in their city. So Jesus called the disciples, designated them as apostles. You're going to learn here in just a moment. And he himself went on to preach in these other cities. So Jesus was preaching. Then Jesus sent these apostles to preach the message that he was preaching. Mark 3.14. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles. The title apostle means sent. And you're going to see this here in a second. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So in other words, Jesus appointed sent ones to send them. What did he send them to do? Preach. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus preach? And why did Jesus give them a message to preach and send them to go preach that message? Here we go. John 1, 1 to 3. This is important. John 1, 1 to 3. Don't have time to unpack why John writes the way John writes and his audience. But you need to go study the book of John the Gospel of John, and recognize his audience, his Gentile audience, as he's on mission, particularly probably around Ephesus. Great book, if you want to go read it, called Ephesiology. It's a study of missional theology uh, in the Gospel of John applied to the mission field. Fantastic. Go read it. Why is Jesus preaching and preaching about himself and giving this word to these apostles who are going to preach his message? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. You're telling me, Jesus, John here calls the Word of God, and it is through the Word of God that we read in Genesis chapter 1, who is Jesus, that all things are created. So you're telling me Jesus created everything. Yes. Who is Jesus? He's God's Word. He's who God speaks. God speaks about Himself. And what does He speak? He speaks Jesus. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the father, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the means as the word of God, the speaking of God by which all creation came to be. Jesus is the speaking of God, the father. And you want to know what God says? You want to know God's word? Go look at Jesus. This is what Paul means in Colossians 1, 15 to 16. When Paul says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And this is why Paul preached the word of Jesus, because Jesus is God and He's the full revelation of God. This is why Paul came preaching Jesus and Him crucified, because Jesus is the very word of God. Jesus is the means by which all things were created. So therefore, God speaks, God preaches, Jesus is that means. So when we're sent to preach God's word, we preach Jesus. You tracking? We've done about... 
Four years worth of doctoral work in roughly 28 minutes. Which is why I told you you have to go unpack this in your small groups. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke. God spoke. He spoke a word. He preached to our fathers by the prophets. Right? I could have just started with Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. But have been proof texting. I wanted you to see why the writer of Hebrews writes what he writes right here. He's not just making this up. The writer of Hebrews is giving us Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 because he's read everything from Genesis to Malachi. Right? So he spoke to us, to the fathers, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the word, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, that, that passage alone... God speaks. He speaks to us about Jesus by the prophets. And it is by this very word that he created and sustains the entire universe. God the preacher holds all things together by preaching Jesus Christ and sends us to preach that message too. Glory to God. I'm just going to have to skip Romans 10, 5 to 17. Well, I can't. Because Jesus is the preacher and the content of the preaching as the word... We have a message that will do God's work and a mandate to take that message to everybody who will hear. This is why Paul gives Romans 10, 5 to 17. And he says to us here, Moses writes about this righteousness that's based on the law. And he tells us about it. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, for that's to bring Christ down. Or who will descend to the abyss? That's to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does this word say, this message we preach? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim, we preach. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14. How then are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You, you Again, summed up. Right? That's our message. Our message is the word of God who is Jesus Christ. And there's a world who doesn't know because they got scattered at Babel because they wouldn't listen to the word of the Lord and obey it. So God called the people to be himself, to be his people in the midst of the earth. He would give them his word and he would send them to go preach this message because they don't know. And they're going to know unless somebody goes and tells them. So they got to preach this message of Jesus. And they're not going to be sent unless we send them. And so you begin to see all through the text, there is a clear word. There's a God who preaches it. He calls people to tell it. There's a mission to be had, and the mission is to take that word to people who don't know. So here's our big idea. We've done all that to filter down to this one big idea. Therefore, even from the Jewish synagogue to the earliest church, all the way until today, opening God's word and expounding it with Jesus as the goal and fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, and the very incarnation of truth, and the the interpretive key to the entire message, has been and must continue to be the centerpiece of a Christian worship service. That sentence is going to take you a while to unpack. Right? 
remember the question? Why, why preach? Why do this preaching thing? It just seems so old-fashioned, out of date. This dude stands up there, and they talk. Or, my gosh, he sometimes is preaching 50 minutes. And sometimes he says big words. And he uses the Bible, and it just feels so culturally out of date. And it just says, all, oh, why, why, why? All of that is why. Because God has a message, and he himself is the preacher and the model. And he is the content. And he sends us, and by the, and we're going to make application here in a second, all of us, not just me, all of us, to proclaim this message with Jesus as the goal. and the, Because he's the word, right? He's the logos. He's the, he's the message and the means. That we're to preach Jesus as the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament, the very incarnation of truth, and the interpretive key to its entire message. And therefore, it is the centerpiece of a Christian worship service and should be so. Because his word's powerful and effective. This is why we do this and God saves people. This is why we do this and God gives you a global footprint. You can't explain our place in the world at our size in Rome's stinking Georgia unless God's word speaks to a heart and says, go. Unless it does in Acts 13 to the church at Antioch where they were ministering to the Lord and fasting and the Lord spoke to Barnabas and Saul and said, get up and go. And the church recognized and said, yeah, I think you should go. And they laid their hands on, fasted, and sent them off. Boom! First missionary journey. You can't explain that apart from the powerful word of God speaking truth to hearts as the word of God is expounded and says, get on my mission. Get after it. And they go, man, I think I ought to hear that. Why? Because the word of God is effective and powerful because God himself speaks it through fools who are willing to open their mouth and take the content of this and give it to you. That's how we get the mission done. Okay, how do we make application? Jeez, I'm over. I, I worked on this all week to get it in 30 minutes, and I'm over. I chased too many squirrels. Get these applications quick. We need to know. We need to know and believe preaching serves to put God's word, God's communication to his people and the world, and in the place it should be as primary, because there is a real battle between truth and error. We need to believe that preaching serves to put God's word in the public square, his communication, because there's a real battle between truth and error. There's a war going on in your mind. You don't know what to believe right now. We don't know what to believe in our house. We constantly, I don't know who to believe. I don't know what to believe. I think they're all lying. I think they're telling the truth. I think they're telling the truth. I think they're telling the truth. And, and we're just back and forth all over the emotional spectrum. And this is why I keep saying to people, this is Right? This is the ballast. It doesn't mention the Rona, but it tells me the God who's in charge of the Rona, and they'll have a mission to preach the gospel to the nations. And therefore, if that ballast can get in the bottom of my ship, it can cause me to stop and go, there is something to do tomorrow. And there are people who need to hear this word of truth, this Jesus we proclaim. That ballast needs to be in all of our ships. And we'll find our mission right here. And it's not our country. It's not our city. It's not our state. It's Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And we put that in the public square and do the Romans 14 that we learned last week. This love, this glory of God can draw people together in unity who disagree on a hundred things because the main thing is the main thing. That's Jesus, the Word. There's a battle for truth and error. And far too many taking, far too many of us taking things that aren't true and putting them up that's true. Come back right here. 
Jesus be the ballast. Number two, we must preach from God's word with the gospel and all its multifaceted glory and its application as our aim. At times we preach through books of the Bible. At times we preach through topics using either expository methods or biblical theology. Third, we believe that our elders and all members of Three Rivers Church are preachers of God's word sent on mission to know Jesus and make him known in covenant fellowship among all nations beginning right here in Rome, Georgia. See Acts 8.4. Not just my job, your job. Acts 8.4 is clear. The entire church is called to preach the gospel. And that's one of our challenges in American ecclesiology is we have taken the title preacher and made it equal to Protestant Pope. And therefore, it's one person's job that we pay or somebody who volunteers to do that task. And my job is to go and be entertained by them or listen to what they say and criticize them. And that is not how the Bible presents preaching. God's the preacher and he calls all of his people to bear that message to the nations. You are preachers of God's word. And I'm going to say this and and you may leave. I'm sorry. But if you're not preaching the gospel daily to people who need to hear it, you're failing the mission. You are a preacher of the gospel. Acts 8, 4 could not be more clear. God has called all of us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So get after it. Okay, we got an evangelism one coming later. It's coming down, so I'm going to hold that. Hold that one. We believe that the preaching of God's word does supernatural work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Number five, believe that a mark of being a biblical church is Christ-centered whole Bible preaching that aims at equipping the whole body to grow up into Christ who is the head of his church. And finally, three of us church, hear this one because this is going to prep us to sing. We worship because God's word has come to us. You stop and think for a second. You got here somehow. Your relatives got here somewhere. Your relatives' relatives got here somehow. And somehow God's word got here. And you're in this room today because somehow beautiful feet brought the word of Christ to you that took you from death to life, from darkness to light. So let's do this. Let's worship in thanksgiving for Jesus. The word of God became flesh. Forgiving himself, giving us his word, and sending people to proclaim that message so that today we would have heard, known, and be brought into the white hot worship of Jesus Christ. All because somebody preached. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, help us to make much of you. Help us to honor you. Let the words of our mouth and meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. As we sing, it would come from a heart that has been liberated from the shackles of the curse, filled with the Holy Spirit to make much of you. Pray that you will move your people to mission, that your word wouldn't just be something we consume, but it would be effective to put us on your mission of preaching that message, starting here in Rome and going to every tribe, nation we need you to make that happen if you don't make that happen we futilely work so we pray now that you would take this short biblical theology of preaching and you move your people to worship and to action would you please do it in Jesus name